Good evening, I'm Binti Harvey, Vice President of External Relations and Institutional Advancement at Scripps College in Claremont, California. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's conversation, which will examine the question, what does a feminist foreign policy look like? Scripps College is educating the next generation of women leaders through its dynamic contemporary liberal arts curriculum, and this kind of inquiry is a hallmark of our academic community. We're committed to creating space for the rigorous exchange of ideas, both inside and outside of the classroom. And I know that commitment is shared by our partner, Zocalo Public Square. I'm delighted to explore this timely topic with you this evening, and I invite you to join the conversation. Enjoy. Thank you, Binti. Welcome to Zocalo Public Square a creative unit of Arizona State University, and we are proud to partner with Scripps College to present today's conversation, What Does a Feminist Foreign Policy Look Like? At Zoclo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zoclopublicsquare.org. I'm excited to introduce our moderator for today's event, Alicia Haridasani Gupta. Alicia is a reporter at the New York Times covering politics, business, technology, health, and culture through the lens of gender. She has covered, among many other issues, inequality in the boardroom, the gendered ramifications of Brexit, the diversity of the Oscars, the biases programmed into AI technology, and more recently, how COVID-19 is impacting women. Over to you, Alicia. Thank you, Moira. Good evening and welcome to our audience joining us today. In July, I published an article in the New York Times about feminist foreign policies. And I found myself scratching my head a lot. What exactly is it? And, and how can we explain that big scary F word to our readers? And how do we contextualize the importance of this policy in the middle of a pandemic? So I'm truly delighted to be having this conversation today with a group of distinguished women in this field, because the more we talk about this and open up the discussion, the more that people will understand what it actually means to have a feminist foreign policy, or at least that's what I hope. I'm pleased to introduce our panel. Ambassador Milan Revere is the former and first ever US ambassador at large for global women's issues under President Obama. Now, she is the executive director of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace and Security and the co-founder of Seneca Woman, a global leadership platform focused on advancing women and girls. I have Diana Alarcon is the chief advisor to the mayor and foreign affairs coordinator for the Mexico City government. She was previously head of the policy and development analysis unit at the United Nations Dep Department of Economic and Social Affairs. And she has also worked at the UN Development Program and the International Labor Organization. I have Nancy Nyman. She is a professor of politics at Scripps College. She studies financial markets in developing countries, social movements in Latin America, and the global food system. And I have Elmira Bay-Rasli. She is the CEO and co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, which addresses the gender disparities in foreign policy experts represented in the media. She is also a professor at Bard College and the Direct Bard College's Global and International Affairs Program. 
Thank you everyone for joining me today. I want to start by first just familiarizing our audience with a term that will obviously come up a lot in this conversation. So I wonder if we can go around and just give, uh, if you could just give me your brief definition of what you think a feminist foreign policy is. I'll start with Milan. Well, thank you, Alicia. And it's really good to be with everyone on, on the panel here uh, this evening. Uh, I think the best way to start is what is foreign policy? What does our foreign policy do? It advances the interests of our country, of our citizens. It advances democracy, human rights, uh, international understanding. It's about preventing conflicts and it's about creating good relations with other nations. What a feminist foreign policy would do, recognizing that half the world's population is female, that women have great contributions to make in all of these areas, is to put a gender lens or a gender perspective on all the things that the State Department deals with, for example, from economic issues to regional issues to human rights issues to peace and conflict. And in doing that, it creates far better outcomes because if women are participating, women experience most circumstances differently. And we have to mm -hmm. factor in those differences if we're going to have better foreign policy, more effective foreign policy. So mm -hmm. in a nutshell, it's recognizing uh, that where women uh, have their rights, have opportunities, those countries are far more prosperous and peaceful. If you write off half the population of the world, no nation can succeed. So mm -hmm. recognizing the condition of women, the condition of nations goes hand in hand. Thank you. Uh, Nancy, why don't you go next? Okay. Um, well, I have to admit that um, I don't really do foreign policy, but uh, when I was asked to sit on this panel, which I'm very excited about, uh, I read up on what a feminist foreign policy is. And, and one of the, I was really surprised to find that one of the key things is um, focusing on uh, marginalized communities globally. And I think that is totally in line with um, my interest as a political economist um, studying global markets. Um, so I, I think for me, interestingly, I would move the focus a little more away from the interests of the nation, which is historically what foreign policy is about and really think about um, transnational issues that, you know, the vulnerability of women in global markets um, is really a transnational issue and it's an intersectional issue. It's about mm -hmm. race, class, and gender. And I think those are the things that have to stay on the table. And the hope would be that more and more countries are interested in actually um, addressing those important issues. Hmm. Diana, what about you? Um, I am in a city government. So as a city government, we do not do foreign policy, uh, but we do have with uh, many cities around the world. We are part of uh, these uh, city networks that are promoting and uh, working on international issues in general. Now, the uh, in our view, the role of our city internationally is to promote the things 
that we do domestically, both to advocate for those issues and to enrich our experiences through, you know, uh, by learning from the experience of other cities uh, and other contexts. So what we do interna in the international, in our international relations is to promote the six strategic areas that define our government program. Uh, those being uh, the agenda for equal rights, equal rights for all, and the theme, you know, the, the, the phrase, lemma in Spanish, I don't know how you say that in English, of our city government is innovation and rights. So hmm. the most important objective of our public policies in the city at this point is to make sure that people have access and can exercise their, their rights, their social rights, economic rights, uh, human rights. And this is what we advocate, and this is uh, uh, the substance of our foreign relations, to advocate for the idea of equal rights for all. Uh, and on this, I will say in Mexico City, we are 9.2 million people in the city, of which 52.8% are women. So in advocating for equal rights and defining our, uh, our public policies around the issue of rights, that, makes, that, make, uh, that means making sure that more than 50% of the people in our city have mm -hmm. equal access to rights uh, as, as well as men. So uh, I just mentioned, uh, perhaps this is the first strategic uh, issue of our government program. There are five more that I will uh, be happy to, uh, to talk to you about uh, around issues of sustainability and security and so on. But in all of them, the issue of equal rights and uh, guaranteeing those rights for people and especially for women, more than 50% of our population is uh, at the at the bottom of our foreign relations and our foreign engagement. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, Elmira, what's your definition? I'm so glad that we're going through the different definitions of a feminist foreign policy because it isn't just one thing. And I think as Milan rightly pointed out, fundamentally it is about foreign policy and how nations um, interact with one another and how the global community works together on a variety of issues. And Nancy pointed out transnational issues like climate change, like global health. When feminist foreign policy was first coined, um, introduced by Sweden in 2014, it was very much focused on the rights of women and making sure that women are at the negotiating table, whether it is on peace negotiations um, development efforts include women and consideration for women and girls issues. Um, when we're including feminist foreign policy, I think looking at it in the United States, I think, I think it's undergoing another definition. And what I think what we need to, what we need to actually remember is that this is not exclusively just about women. We want to make sure that women are included. And as Milan pointed out, women are half of the world's population, and we need to start considering what their role and their participation is on a variety of different issues, whether it is on foreign policy, on climate change, on, on global health, hunger, um, extremism, and poverty. 
Um, but fundamentally, if we're talking about what foreign policy is, feminist foreign policy really gets to stability and progress. And I think when we're talking particularly about the United States, I know that in conversations that I've had with many people in Washington, it often gets dismissed as a very kind of niche, um, you know, very cute little side issue um, that, you know, feminists like myself like to embrace. But the reality is the United States and the world that we live in today is a very different one than we were in in the 20th century. And it's really time that we start to look at feminist foreign policy as an alternative to how each nation was approaching foreign policy um, when, when, when the problems were limited to nation states. Now there are numerous global challenges that really require us to look at the outcomes, mm. which are mm. stability and progress. And fundamentally for me, feminist foreign policy is really about getting to that. Mm. Thank you. You brought up some interesting points and I will come back to you in a second. But I wanna start again with Milan. Um, you mentioned uh, you know, how feminist foreign policy sort of guides how nations interact with each other. I wonder if you can give us some examples of uh, you know, uh, case studies that you've come across in which a feminist foreign policy has intersected with uh, peace and security negotiations. There is research that suggests you know, feminist foreign policy is literally the key to world peace. <laughs> well, I think uh, getting back to what was just said about, we're not talking about women's issues per se. They are absolutely included, they are central. But this is all kinds of issues that the government is engaged in uh, from today's issue of COVID uh, to climate to economic issues. There is a gender lens that needs to be applied to that for a whole variety of reasons. So take peace and security. Speaking about the United States, we are the first country in the world with a law now that follows a United Nations framework that links women's agency to peace and security. In a whole lot of spaces, in prevention, in participating in negotiations, uh, in, in uh, in many conflicts today, the world has changed indeed. A lot of them are internal conflicts with combatants. Uh, sexual violence is a huge challenge in those situations. So it recognizes what happens to women. Uh, but women just aren't victims. Women are problem solvers. Women have agency. And to look at them, as a woman in Afghanistan said to me years ago, stop looking at us as victims and look at us as the leaders that we are. And it recognizes that leadership at the peace table in relief and recovery across the board. So take Colombia's peace agreement, which was mm -hmm. an extraordinary achievement after 50 years of civil war. Uh, there, the women had put out proposal after proposal, finally gathered in exasperation in a summit came up with a bunch of recommendations at a time when there was a real serious effort to finally do this. Testimony was taken from the indigenous women, from the marginalized women. Uh, the talks were going on in Cuba and they were going on in Colombia and the, and the testimony was taken in both places. The issues that affected women throughout that conflict were considered mm -hmm. and there were uh, uh, recommendations put in place in the peace agreement to address mm -hmm. those issues. Um, 
for the first time ever, there was a gender subcommission that was part and parcel of the peace talks. So it's, it's a way that anybody involved in those talks, and there were other country validators, the United States certainly was involved because it's in our interest uh, to see this conflict come to an end uh, in, in terms of our values as well. And to support those integrative efforts of ensuring that women's issues were confronted, that women were participating, mm. and that they were fully integrated in what we were doing. Mm. And this is, this is an obligation, an imperative on our ambassadors say. Um, there's many an ambassador in the traditional way that was just described that diplomacy is often done, mm. uh, who don't even see how this fits what they're about. Uh, I remember once visiting a country uh, and saying to the uh, embassy staff, I really want to talk uh, to the people in the country of put together their national action plan on women, peace and security, which some 70 countries have now to guide their work in this area. Mm. And they said, well, we didn't even know that there was a national, national action plan <laughs> that was put together in this country. And when they complied and I got together with the principals, one of the key people was the chief of staff to the president. Another one was a high level military official. There were women run NGOs. And the ambassador said to me, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And yet we had a role to play in our dealings with that country to, to make sure that they succeeded at this. It was in our interest and their interest. Mm -hmm. So it's an example of how this should work optimally. Right. I, Elmira, I wanna come back to you. Um, you mentioned outcomes. So much of um, feminist foreign policy when it first started, and, and Milan, Milan was the one who enlightened me, enlightened me on this, that there was never any data before. You know, it was kind of tough to even study this area. So now we're talking about outcomes. Have you found any uh, case studies or any uh, sort of um, examples where, where a feminist lens has led to positive outcomes or progressive outcomes? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Milan pointed out women, peace and security, um, you know, and there have been studies that show that when women and women's organizations are part of a peace negotiation, the peace agreement lasts 64% um, of the time. Um, and you know, about 35% of those peace agreements last for over for over 30 years. And mm. so I think proof right there that when women are involved, um, mm. you know, again, talking about women not being, not just being victims, but actually being part of the solution to many of these problems. Um, but one thing that I do wanna talk about that I think is very important when we're talking about feminist foreign policy is, and we're specifically talking about outcomes, is that this is not just limited to the policymakers in Washington. And so while I think it is profoundly important that we do have our embassies and our ambassadors thinking through a gender lens about what is happening to, what is happening to women um, through a variety of, of um, prisms, whether it's being trade or commerce or the environment, and global health, we also have to remember foreign policy is profoundly different in the 21st century. Now we have things like Facebook and Google and mm. technology platforms. I mean, we're coming to you here on Zoom and mm. on YouTube. And mm. what we've actually, 
why this is a very imperative topic is that technology is starting to really define our foreign policy. We've already seen the role that Twitter and Facebook have played on a number of global issues. Mm. But when you're talking about technology apps, whether it's translation apps or face recognition, a lot of these technologies are being created by men. And so when mm. we're talking about the composition of who is being involved in this, who is making the plans of these technologies, it is profoundly important to include women, just as we want women at the, at the peace table working out peace agreements, we wanna make sure that women are at the policy table when we're talking about economic plans, when we're talking about global health, when we're talking about climate change, but we're also when we're talking about technology and how technology is being built and how technology is being used. Because again, mm -hmm. going back to your original point about outcomes, the outcome, I think we've lost, we've lost sight of what the outcomes need to be. And it's become this race of like whose GDP is, you know, better, and the and and the you know whose military um, can out outdo another person's military. Well, COVID has shown us in this past year that all of that is completely irrelevant. That we really need to actually start thinking about foreign policy in a, in a very different way. And I think feminist foreign policy is a very good way to go go forward. Hmm. That actually brings me to my next point, and I want to bring Nancy in for this. How do you think applying a feminist lens plays out in, you know, economies and financial markets and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so um, I was really interested in what Omari was saying about economic policy in particular and trade policy and that women need to be at the table. So um, the, the case study that I'm most familiar with is actually um, the maquila industry in um, Northern Mexico, in Juarez. Um, and, and in fact, when I think about um, the foreign policy or foreign trade policy involved there, NAFTA, um, you know, it affected women in such a, a massive way, right? So NAFTA gets put into place and, um, and as a result of NAFTA, the ejidos in Southern Mexico, the um, communal farms are broken up. Um, and there is a, there are many, many people who end up not being able to make a living as farmers anymore in Southern Mexico and they migrate north. As it turns out, many, many of those migrants who, who moved to places like Juarez to work in these assembly plants were young indigenous women. So mm -hmm. the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. Um, and, and that's not an accident, right? Because, you know, global capital seeks out um, cheap labor. And I, and I also mm. want to put that in quotes because, you know, none of us are cheap, but in fact, they are, they are treated as such and treated as disposable, right? And so, you know, the story of what is, is just a tragedy. Um, we also end up with um, a large number of uh, disappeared and murdered women um, that is interconnected with, um, I, I think, the devaluation of young mm -hmm. women's lives, right? And mm -hmm. all of this, right, is triggered by a foreign trade policy that did not consider women. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do, you know, I, I, I kind of want to connect what I'm interested in with what everybody else is talking about, because there's a, you know, there's a top there's a top down and a bottom up kind of thing. Mm. And I think those, and those things need to connect for sure. But, but I think Wattis is a story of what happens when you don't. Mm. 
Right. Of course, that makes sense. I guess that brings me to Diana then, since you bring up Mexico. Uh, Mexico is one of the few countries in the world that has formally adopted a feminist foreign policy. But I wonder how that plays out in the at the city level. What are some of the policies that you've introduced that tackle uh, women's issues specifically and, fem you know, brings a feminist lens to policies? Uh well, we live in, in a city nowadays where women's issues are very high on the agenda for the good and for the bad reasons. As Nancy was saying, we do have a problem with violence against women. Mm. And sometimes with some of the worst forms of violence against women, which is uh, feminicidious. I don't know how you say that in a way. Um, so one of the, of, of the things that are happening in Mexico City is this awareness about the importance of having women at the table, at the policy table. Uh, the government, the city government right now, uh, we say uh, there is gender parity in the central government. In fact, we are more women than men, you know, in the key, uh, in the key areas of government. We have a local Congress where there is gender parity as well. And uh, gender parity in terms of women's representation and women's making decisions on all the important issues uh, in the city are very important. I'll give you an example. We are just about to uh, initiate the long-term planning of the city and there is a planning institute that you know, was approved by the Congress and is going to start operations. The chief of government, our mayor, uh, just uh, uh, returned the proposal of made by uh, this uh, uh, the governing uh, body of the institute for the technical committee, because the technical committee, a committee that has twelve members, have only two women and ten men at the table. You know, and for her, it was not acceptable. So mm -hmm. the proposal was rejected just based on the idea of. Uh, uh, women's representation from that. So mm -hmm. if you talk about uh, policy making, public policy uh, in, in the city, whether it is uh, related to uh, issues around sustainability of the city, the environment, climate change, uh, the quality of, of air, etc. cetera, uh, it, whether it is issues around mobility, you know, safety uh, on mobility and integrated forms of, of mobility, issues around culture, uh, exercising your right to uh, participate and be uh, part of cultural, uh, cultural life, security, science, innovation, technology, in all these areas, women are sitting at the table and mm -hmm. are making uh, sure that all those things will come together and will work for women, for children, for men, and for everyone. And in that sense, I agree with you know what uh, Melanie and Nancy and Elmira have, have been saying. Women's issues are not the issues that are relevant to women only. You know, mm -hmm. women's issues are the issues that are relevant to the society, to the children, to the to the husbands, to the uh, uh, to men. And that is the importance, we think, of bringing women into policymaking at, uh, at, at decision points, right? It's not just being part of, of uh, being around the table, but it is being, uh, uh, being able to make decisions 
on all the issues that are important to the life of people. Mm. Um, so, right. you know, that's, yeah. that's a fundamental Thanks. approach, which is different to previous governments, right? This is probably the first city government that has brought the issue of gender participation in public uh, uh, policy to the core of the uh, of policy making. Mm, right. Um, I want to open this up a little bit, and I guess we can go around again. Um, have you come across any tools or um, accountability tools to make sure that you know when a government commits to a feminist policy? that it's not just a PR stunt. Um, and I'm thinking specifically, like in Canada, they have, a, uh, they have a clause that every budget has to go through a gender analysis. So I just wanna go around and see if you've come across any interesting actual working, workable uh, tools that, that government can use uh, to, to hold themselves accountable. Milan? Well, before I answer that, I wanna pick up on two points, one that Nancy made and one that uh, Elmira made. Uh, on the economic trade front, uh, that was an excellent example. And I can tell you for it, just during my time, I had an official say to me, we've never thought about women and trade. So, you know, these policies are made in the absence of a gender consideration often. But then I can give you a better example in terms of progress. The Africa Growth Opportunity Act is something we have with many African countries that provides a tariff-free trade and working with the women to give them the first time ever that they could benefit from that because nobody reached out, nobody was saying you too can benefit from this, providing the training to the point today where there are countless women entrepreneurs, which is a glorious word for people who made shea butter and turned it into something that can be exportable mm -hmm. and giving them viable economic opportunities through trade, which is what it should be in many ways. So mm -hmm. the trade piece and then the social media piece, our State Department's involved in technology. It's a, it's a big space and so are many other elements of government. They need to integrate these issues. One of the first things that, that we did, I had a fellow who came from Silicon Valley and said, I wanna put my ideas to use here to promote women's interests. First ever gender gap study in mobile. There's a huge gender gap study in mobile and mobile technology is a tool of development. Women need it around the globe. And one of the key ways is where there's mobile banking, they can finally save their money safely and transact it safely. The internet gap we're seeing with COVID, how disconnected mm -hmm. so many poor people are from the mm -hmm. internet. What are we doing in our policies to ensure that that gap gets closed. And AI just creates a whole new world that needs to be factored in. So these are all issues that come under the same umbrella uh, and, and really need to be um, understood and then raised up so that there mm -hmm. is a gender perspective and lens being brought to them. Now on the evaluation metrics um, front, uh, there are, the beginnings of processes, the USAID uh, has a number of uh, evaluative tools that they use as, as they have a mandate in their development programs. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about is yes, foreign policy, but development being a part of that uh, to make sure that the grants that are being made 
and the work that is being done is actually achieving its goals from the point of view of the gender lens applied to them. So there's a whole world of new um, uh, tools, uh, measurement tools uh, and, and evaluation tools that are being brought more specifically to development in my experience, as opposed mm. to the broader policy arena. Mm. Elmira, do you know of any examples of accountability tools? Well, I think in terms of accountability, I think maybe we need to look at this from a different perspective. Um, right now, the way that we measure, um, you know, we look at the G20, the strongest um, economies of the world, and we're, look, we're measuring them based on GDP. But if you actually take a look at other factors um, and the social progress imperative um, puts out every year, the social progress index, which mm. actually categorizes countries based on a number of different factors, whether mm. it's gender equality, how they're doing on, on healthcare, how they're doing on the environment. Mm. And when you actually categorize countries on people's well-being, um, access to opportunities, um, mobility, the United States actually doesn't even come in on the top 10. And so rather than kind of looking at, you know, how, how do we make feminist foreign policy work, maybe we should actually look to see, maybe we should actually change the tools, how we're actually measuring foreign policy today. Um, and actually take a look, because I think there's a lot of things that aren't working today. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I feel like it's always a challenge for women is that we always have to prove, you know, like show us the statistics and show us the proof of how, you know, how something is going to work when, mm -hmm. meanwhile, there's abundant evidence of things that are not working. Um, mm -hmm. You know, democracy is, is on the decline. And there are, there's a rise of strong men around the world and there is increased tensions around the world and we have a global pandemic. And so clearly there needs to be a re reassessment of how we are approaching foreign policy now. And again, I think feminist foreign policy rather than looking at it as this very niche, you know, marginal thing, looking at it as a possible solution to the challenges that we have today, because it is a modern lens to the modern world. Mm. Right. I guess we can't get through this conversation without mentioning COVID, right? Of course, women are disproportionately impacted by COVID, uh, both directly and indirectly. They're on the front line, but they're also at home taking on extra care burdens and all of that. Um, Diana, I want to come to you. Um, and what kind of policies did you enact during COVID in the city, in Mexico City, that, that helped women? Uh, and brought a feminist lens to the situation? Uh, there are two uh, main areas of response to COVID in Mexico City. One, of course, was health, you know, sanitary, making sure that there is universal access to health for people who need it. So that's uh, one line of, of work. And the second one, very important, is to support the welfare of people. You know, people are, have to stay home. Uh, people cannot go to work. Children are home uh, with the parents, without school, and so on. And that's a, a, a big burden on, on families, on family income, and on the, on the welfare. So there was a, a whole a set of programs that were designed to support people uh, and to support women in particular. Uh, you have to realize around 
90% of people in Mexico are in informal sector. That means you don't go out to work and you have no income, right? And that income, of course, is the, the, the source of, uh, of, of income for, for a whole family, not just for the, for the person. So uh, one of the uh, uh, two or three programs were activated to support the income of people. One of them was an expansion of uh, um, um, unemployment compensation. As in any country, unemployment compensation is for formal workers only. In the city, we extended that to informal workers as well. So they were able to receive a, a, a monthly income for a, a number of, of months uh, you know, in order to support their welfare. We have a program uh, that was actually adopted at the end of 2019, I think mid 2019, which is a universal scholarship for children from kindergarten to uh, middle school. Uh, all children going to public schools have a scholarship. Well, that scholarship continued to be deposited to, uh, to the children, I mean, to the, to the parents of the children, uh, to women uh, especially. And uh, there was an increase in the stipend, you know, in the scholarship. Uh, in order to support the welfare uh, of, of the family. And there was a, a, a three times disbursement, you know, other than the monthly, uh, the, the monthly scholarship, uh, there was an additional disbursement, you know, under this uh, universal scholarship mm -hmm. program uh, three times uh, during the, the year and another mm -hmm. time in 2021. There was a, a very large program of uh, loans, zero interest loans, soft loans for micro enterprises and informal sector workers, especially women. Around 60% mm -hmm. of the beneficiaries of those loans were uh, women. It's zero percent interest, three months, uh, uh, three months with no pay. Uh, I don't know how you say that, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and then after that, a two-year period of time uh, to, to repay the loans. So these are some, just some of the programs that were activated very quickly on this line of, uh, of support to families, to support the welfare of families, you know, other than the things that were done for the sanitary emergency itself. Hmm. Right. I think... So many of uh, so many of the people viewing this would you know immediately think like we can have a feminist foreign policy, but does that mean that you cut off trade with a place like Saudi Arabia, or does that mean that you know you stop you you take away NAFTA like like Nancy mentioned? How do how do countries balance these different interests or conflicts of interests? Milan, do you want to start? It's very very difficult because in in the black and white prism, there is no question. Uh, they're human rights violators. Uh, you, you act accordingly with them uh, as violators, but we have interests uh, that I don't want to say <clears throat> are take precedence over those, but I want to say are, are equal interests or interests we also have to consider uh, because mm -hmm. of who the governments are. So I've been in this circumstance where you've got severe violations of human rights and you know, it's just nothing that can be condoned and you don't condone it. You do work with uh, officials. You do 
even sanction at times. You, you take measures, but you also can't always completely cut off because yeah. there are other interests the country has. Yeah. The United Elmira, States has. Yeah. Elmira, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, you know, I, I started my career out at the State Department, um, and I think diplomats have a very difficult job. Mm. And, you know, people don't see what happens behind the scenes, and it is, it is a balancing act. I think one of the things um, that I think each country needs to prioritize is, again, you know, like, what are our values and what, are we, what do we want to achieve? I mean, since President Biden has taken office, we've seen a dramatic shift in the tone of foreign policy, where it is one where values and human rights are, are very much a priority and, and have taken importance. Um, now, you know, the United States is a very important country in the world and has to engage with a number of, um, you know, it has to deal with nations of the world. And so, um, it is, it's a, it's a balancing act, but I think the one thing that we need to keep in mind is that while it is a balancing act, it doesn't mean that we can't start thinking about how, how are our actions, whether it is on climate change, on economics, on trade, how are those things impacting, whether it is, what is women and girls and, and different marginalized communities. I think that is something that is profoundly important and that should be inherently part of at least a US foreign policy. Right. It, I guess this comes back to what Nancy was saying and Nancy jump in here. You know, it, I think maybe we're measuring things the wrong way. You know, we're measuring, we're measuring trade by the amount of trade that's made rather than how it's lifting, lifting boats. What do you say? Yeah. No, for sure. Um, I actually wanted to connect um, your previous question about accountability with what mm -hmm. Omara just um, talked about. And, you know, I love that you put it in terms of accountability because some of this is about, so I'm thinking about the, not this COVID crisis, but the last huge global crisis, the 2008 financial crisis. And, you know, I, when you said accountability, I immediately thought of Iceland. I thought of Iceland because it was, it was one of the few countries in the world that actually prosecuted its bankers, right? Mm. Like, and, and most of those bankers were men. It turns out that Iceland has a pretty decent percentage of women-owned banks. And those were the only banks that were not part of the problem and did not get prosecuted. So mm. I, you know, I just think it's, and that is not, you know, that I guess that's a women's issue just because of who's heading the banks. But if you think about the exploitation happening from the concentration of capital um, and, and the global financial crisis and how it affected poor people all over the world, right? It really does connect these issues. Um, and, you know, and maybe it's not just that women are running the banks, but it certainly seems odd. <laughs> that those are the old yeah. banks that were not, right? So maybe it does matter. Yeah. Well, you yeah. can also look at it in terms of the women leaders in COVID. Uh, I mean, everybody's talking about yeah. what a difference they made, but Iceland's interesting, I agree, uh, because they also sent two women, two women in where they were appointed to clean up the mess. Uh, and they are always on top of every list in terms of the well-being of women. So they're doing something right. Right. Let me share um, a thought. 
Yes, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yep, go ahead. Let me, let me share, uh, share a thought on this issue of international trade and so on. And uh, I am speaking from a highly globalized city, right? Mexico City, its economy depends very much on global trade and international tourism and so on. Uh, so I'm not going to say that it's not important. It is very important. But something that this uh, COVID crisis showed to us is how weak also those links will be you know, to situations like the one we're living now. Um, and so one of the, of the, uh, of the things we learned in, in these months is the importance of the local economy. There are so many things that can be produced and services that can be provided locally that we are not taking into those opportunities you know, because we have our global uh, economic uh, links, international trade and services mm. and so on. And we never, those issues of the, the, the local economy, local service provision never come to light uh, with the strength that they did in, uh, during this crisis. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the issues in the agenda right now for the city government is ways to promote the local economy. There is so much more that could be done. This is good for the economy, it is good for the families, and it is very good for the environment as well. Right? Mm -hmm. So there you have, and it is very good for women because it turns mm -hmm. out that entrepreneurships, you know, small scale local entrepreneurship are to a large extent run by, by women. So mm. if something we learned uh, from this crisis is uh, one, the importance of the local economy and second, the agency of women in mm. strengthening and developing these new links, this new local economy that will play an important role in so many, in so many areas. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take one question from the audience that's come in to me. Um, what exactly, and I guess this is more for uh, Milan and Elmira, what exactly is holding the U.S. State Department back from formally announcing a feminist foreign policy? Do you think it's just fear of the word? Well, I think certainly the word has something to do with it. I think we are all in agreement. Uh, feminism is a good thing, and it means that men and women are equal, uh, should enjoy the full equality of rights. But you know, it's it's been over time a loaded word in the United States, and and detractors have tried to put all kinds of interpretations on it. But I, I don't want to say that we don't have a feminist foreign policy. I think that's a a misapprehension. We may not have the perfect foreign policy closer to Sweden's. But from the time of the Beijing conference, mm -hmm. there have been vast efforts made to integrate these issues into US foreign policy. Um, that happened, you had mentioned data at the opening, Alicia. And it is true when, when, when the Beijing conference took place and we were given the command to take those issues and the platform for action, women's progress on every level and integrate them into the United States domestic and foreign policy. When Madeleine Albright shortly thereafter became Secretary of State, she said, these are part of our mission uh, and began to move the women's human rights issues. They weren't viewed as violations of human rights back then. Mm -hmm. Today, mm -hmm. they are front and center. Mm -hmm. uh, and it happened on many different levels. 
and then I think it was truly accelerated when Secretary Clinton was secretary. Uh, and a lot of those steps, even over the last four years, despite the pushback, a lot of that has continued uh, within the work of our, our, dip, our diplomatic um, work. But we're not there yet. Uh, but I think the perfect is not the enemy of the good. A lot mm -hmm. of good has happened and we need to grow that and, and make it much more uh, effective. Right, Elmira, what do you think? I, I, agree, I wholeheartedly agree with what Milan just said. Um, I think that just because we're not calling it a feminist foreign policy doesn't mean that the United States does not embrace a lot of the principles of what feminist foreign policy mm -hmm. advocates. Um, it was Hillary Clinton um, at the Beijing conference who said, you know, women's rights are human rights and human rights are, are women's rights. Um, and, and that's spot on. I mean, we, you know, again, we're talking about taking account for women and girls around the world, but we're not saying we want to exclusively focus in on, on female issues. All of these issues impact both men and women, and we just want to make sure that we are shedding a light on the lens of how it is impacting a segment that we that has largely big, been ignored. Um, and I think going to the point of, I think it's hard for, you know, the superpower of the world to just all of a sudden wake up after four years of Donald Trump. Um, you know, and just say, you know, now we're going to embrace a feminist foreign policy. I think President Biden has taken um, tremendous steps, um, positive steps to show um, his commitment to, to um, women around the world and to women in the United States. He set up the Gender Policy Council. Um, there are a record number of women in his administration at the State Department, at, at the White House. And that is a profoundly important step. I mean, let's not forget, we can't get to the policy and get to the semantics until we actually fix kind of the tools and and the you know how how the machine is actually going to work. Mm. Um, I think that I, I think the United States is moving towards that direction. I think before we can actually start embracing labels like feminist foreign policy, I think we also need to understand that feminist foreign policy is gonna be different for each country and it will certainly be different for the United States. And I think there's a lot, still a lot of work to do. Hmm. I wanna end on a kind of a slightly more philosophical uh, question and I, and I wanna go around. I think a lot of the issues that we deal with, uh, you know, ha not having women at the negotiating table, having women in cheap labor, having women in, uh, you know, experience domestic violence comes down to um, gender stereotypes. Uh, you know, it kind of is this this ingrained uh, psyche that kind of just people default to. Um, I guess maybe I want to ask how how you've seen it play out in your work, in your research, how you've seen, you know, gender biases and stereotypes rear its its head. Uh, it, for, really for no reason, you know, for, for no other reason. Milan? It's, it's definitely... I would say one of the fundamental barriers in terms of women's progress. In fact, we did a report uh, 25 years uh, after Beijing, what's worked, what hasn't, what are the biggest impediments, how do we go forward? Norms, stereotypes, deeply entrenched cultural practices, biases, unconscious or conscious, they are huge impediments. Mm. And one of the things we have to do is find those avenues to begin to turn that around. 
whether it's increased male participation and demonstrating to men that this is in their interest as well. They are co-beneficiaries of women's progress, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's working within communities to turn around deeply entrenched practices, uh, whether it's showing decision makers, largely male at the top, that this is in their interest in terms of their being more effective in the work that they're doing. So we need to do a whole lot of things, but I think you put your nail you put the you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it is a huge problem. Hmm. Diana, we do think so. We are convinced that there is a very large uh, part uh, of, of the problem that has to do with with culture, with perceptions, with biases, with stereotypes. Hmm. Uh, so much so that we have activated several actions deal with that. Mm. Uh, just a month ago, Congress uh, passed legislation that was proposed by the, by, by the city government to have paternal, mater, uh, paternal um, leaves, yeah. right? So that is not just women who take time off from work to take care of the, of the babies, but men as well. Mm. There is a large program in schools that is called Lunes por, por la Educación, a Monday for Education, where uh, you know we, we go government goes and those uh, ludic exercises and so on with children in middle high schools around the issue of violence and especially violence against women, you know, to raise the uh, to raise uh, awareness about that, there is a campaign, a communications campaign about the kind of things that we do, subtle things that we do, right? To uh, say uh, some things, uh, uh, whistle women on the street, that is violence. And that's the way uh, we communicate it to people. So yeah. there is a whole strategy on the things that we do on a, day, on a daily basis that seem, you know, uh, uh, unimportant, but that are part of this uh, uh, of this culture, uh, stereotypes about the role of women, the issue mm. of the division of labor within the household, mm. right, uh, and share household responsibilities. So yes, there is a lot that has to do with culture, with the stereotypes, mm. with biases. Unless you remove those and men come to the side of women for equal rights. You know, this, uh, this is something that is going to stay with us. Yeah. Nancy, have you found examples of this? Yeah, I have. <laughs> um, yeah, Alicia the, Alicia, the only thing that I would reframe about your question is you, you ended it with for no reason. And um, I, I actually do think I'd like to have us like laser focused on the shop floor here, right? <laughs> um, and I, I do think there's a reason, right? The, the exploitation of gender stereotypes and particularly, particularly of femininity um, on the shop floor in these maquila industries and elsewhere all over the world with the feminization of labor, right? There's a reason for it. It maintains power relationships on the shop floor, right? And, and you know, everything from, I mean, you know, there's so many examples, but the Miss Maquila um, pageants that they hold, right? Where they've got women competing against each other for who's the most beautiful worker and, you know, and competing for the attentions of managers. 
that's not something that the women are interested in doing, right? That's something that um, that is imposed in ways, right? That that really do maintain power relationships and exploitation and economic exploitation. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think right. there's a reason. That's a good point, um, Elmira. So, um, I think there needs to be an awareness. I, I think first of all, we need to be aware of um, how women have absorbed a lot of these stereotypes um mm. when i you know when i go out there and i i educate women um you know first we constantly hear women need to be more confident and they need to raise their hands um well i have some i i have to say i think women are confident i think what we're not taking into account is that women when women raise their hands they get punished um mm. women are treated profoundly much more differently than men are um, and going to the point that Nancy just made, you know, there are standards of beauty, you know, what we look like, are we likable? Um, and if we go out there and we talk about some substantive issues, we either, a number of things happen to us. We either get ignored or we get threatened and we get punished in some way. And that prevents women from actually going out there and participating in policy discussions if they are going to be treated in such a negative and such a hostile way. And so I think number one, we need to start looking at things and stop telling women to be more confident. And we need to start actually talking to men and their behavior and what their behavior and their role is in, in actually in women's participation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've had the Me Too movement and we've seen what a profound effect that that has had on a number of different industries. And I think women are starting to feel much more comfortable coming forward and feeling much more comfortable in, in workplaces. But I don't think we actually know the true depth of the brainwashing and the stereotypes that we've actually all internalized. Um, you know, when you say the word doctor, um, I think a lot of people automatically think of, of a man. Um, you say the word president and certainly, you know, the image of a white man comes up and we need to start really breaking out of those. And this is why it's profoundly important to engage not only women, but people of color and people of, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, because there is no one type of person that fulfills a certain a certain role or, or a certain office. Mm. Thank you. Um, so on that note, I think I will wrap up now. This was such an, uh, such an enriching and fascinating conversation, all these different angles to think about. Um, so thank you for joining me and thank you for the audience for tuning in. It has been a pleasure. And thank you to Zocalo and to Scripps College for presenting this conversation. You can find this conversation on Zocalo's website tomorrow, along with short interviews with all of our guests today. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your evening.